The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we, your people, sit now before you and ask you, teach. Speak, Lord, in a way that we can understand, in a way that shapes us, that matures us and grows us up. We look to you to do this by your Spirit, through your Word. And we dare to ask you, because of so many of the things we've already saying, spoken of this morning, that you are a God of grace who has called us to yourself, covered us in your blood, washed away our sin, made us your people. And so your eye is on us favorably in a smile. And like a father drawing dear children to himself, you invite us to come and speak to you about our needs and concerns and wants. And what we want, Lord, is for you to teach us, to grow us up and make us mature. So hear our prayer, and now take this time, Lord, and make your word to run, and give it power to shape us, and make us new, build your church, and honor the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Most stories follow a predictable and familiar narrative arc, whether it's told in a book or in a movie always kind of starts out introducing the characters and the setting, and then it moves along, and then comes the tension, the, the issue, the, the thing the characters are faced with. And then it gets resolved, and the end, usually happily ever after the end. Sometimes there's a twist in there somewhere, sometimes the ending isn't really a pleasant one, but usually that's how stories go. They never end in the middle of the tension. But First Peter does. To be clear, last week's passage, the second to last section of this book of First Peter, did encourage us to lift up our eyes and see the conclusion from, from a little bit of a distance. It said there, after we have suffered a little while, that was in verse 10, there's, there's still a little bit more to this story of suffering, but... Eventually, when it is over, we read, God himself will fix everything and make it all new and all right. He will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And we're encouraged there, lift up your eyes and see the end. It is for sure coming. But it is not yet here. First Peter leaves us still in the middle of the story, not home, but in the middle of the journey, in the middle of the difficulties. With some final words of exhortation and encouragement to keep us pressing on, to help us as we walk. Perhaps we wish it ended last week, though, to kind of help us think like we're, we're standing right at the gate. It's, it's almost there. We're almost to the city, and, and the happily ever after end is right here. But then now we find, actually, we've got to wind back. We're, we're not there yet. 
we still have miles to go before we rest. Peter sends us on our way with some exhortation and some declaration, some encouragement to help us keep pressing on, to to gird up the loins of our minds, to use a phrase from this book, to be sober-minded as we head into the march that we're still on. So we're going to look at the last couple verses of this book, and we're going to use them as Peter intends to kind of look back and kind of remember some of the things that were here. And then I hope as we do so, that'll be an encouragement. It will help us to press on in the journey that still lies before us. So I'm going to read verses 12 to 14 and then draw two observations from them as we wrap it all up. First Peter 5, beginning in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Two observations. Here's the first. God's grace is revealed to us to help us remain faithful in this foreign world. God's grace is revealed to us to help us remain faithful in this foreign world. And by us here, I mean Christians, biblical Christians, those who believe and trust know this Bible. This, the passage is about grace being revealed to Christians, believers already. He mentions this man, Silvanus, whom he regards as a faithful brother. Like other New Testament letters, Peter is commending a messenger, the one who in this case is carrying the letter. It's going to be distributed to all these churches that are in, in all these places throughout what, what is a lot of modern-day Turkey. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 1. And he wants them to know that this letter actually comes from Peter and that he trusts Silvanus to have delivered it faithfully. So he's writing about these things to people who already are Christians, already in the church. And he's written to help them then. And he's written exhorting and he's written declaring Two words. Exhorting is like enthusiastic urging or commanding. And there are things here in this letter that we must do, requirements for us Christians. Not how you become a Christian, but since you already are a Christian, here's what's required of you. And so God, through Peter, exhorts us to do them. From chapter 1, verse 13, we see the command to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Christ returns. And then from that point on, the exhorting just flows. We must not be conformed to the world, not conformed to our own passions, our own feelings, our own desires, but instead we must be holy, set apart to God in the world. That's chapter 1. And then the central section of the letter, chapters 2 and 3 especially, told us a lot about what God wants that to be like, what it looks like to be set apart to God in the world. Keep your conduct, he exhorts. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see your good deeds, they may come to be worshipers of God themselves. That's chapter 2, verse 12, a really important verse in this book. And from then on, 
He says, here's what that looks like. For God's sake, then be subject to the government and be subject to employers and wives subject to one's own husbands. Submission to various authorities, enduring hardship as they may come. All the sufferings that may come from that. All of that is the conduct of life that, that shows that we have a hope that is within us. Not from here, not from this world, but a hope that is within us that's tied to when Christ comes. You'll recall that this was bread and butter evangelistic strategy. But Peter teaches the church that our conduct here in the world is the sort of conduct that, that looks at, here's, I'm submitted to authorities that are, that are bringing me difficulty, and I respond in a way that shows I'm fastened to a hope that's somewhere else. And the people who watch would say, what is that? Where does that come from? That is not human. Exactly. Bread and butter evangelistic strategy. Conduct among the Gentiles that makes them wonder, where does that hope come from that I see to be within you? Peter exhorts us to that kind of conduct. That's the life that God urges upon us here. Sober-minded, self-controlled, in a world that is all kinds of challenging. And that we are not going to fix and make not challenging. That's what it is. And that's what it's going to be. And one of the great purposes in this little brief letter here is to exhort us to live like genuine Christians in a world that isn't and isn't going to become so. To live like Christians here, holy, set apart to God, doing good to others who oppose us, loving them even, and suffering well when they come at us. There's, there's a lot in that, that. That's kind of the core of what this letter has been. And there's a lot in that that is vigorous and challenging. But it will help us to remain faithful by kind of just telling us what faithful is and calling us to it. God calls us to live like that as we journey through this world as exiles. So it would help you, I think, now to pause and kind of just run your mind back through this letter. You can even, if you want, just take a second. And you know, For me, it's just flip a page. The letter's so short. Flip a page and, and skim back through it and say, was there something you remember God poking you about? You were exhorted to to not be conformed to your former passions, but God poked you like you're living a lot like you used to, to be holy and set apart to him, but God poked you. You're kind of conformed to the world. He poked you when it said, I'm supposed to love the brethren, be submissive to those who are over me. He kind of poked you a little bit. Was there something where God said, that's what faithfulness to me looks like? Maybe you need to recall that. There is exhortation in this letter. And in this letter, there is declaration. Peter also says he has written declaring or instructing, stating that this, this, this that I've written here, this is the true grace of God. The whole letter. Parts of it are exhortation, but the whole thing, including the exhortation, the whole thing is God's true grace, the message of his grace. That phrase, and then the command that follows it, which we'll look at in just a minute, 
I think becomes very interesting and helpful. It may not seem like it, because we're reading the end of the letter and we're kind of used to kind of skipping over the stuff at the end of the letter and it might sound kind of like a Christianese way to end mentioning the grace of God and so you just kind of move through it. But I think it would be helpful to hold here for a second and think about this. This little phrase should shape or perhaps reshape how each of us thinks about the Christian faith and our Christian walk in that faith. So follow this. I think you might have to think a little bit about this, but again, I think this is interesting. Peter says that all throughout he's been instructing about God's grace. So for instance, when he declares to us that we are God's elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, that declaration, that's the first two verses of the book, that declaration is the story of God's grace, God's undeserved, unmerited, good dealing with us. Grace. It's the true grace of God, how he chose us in grace, set us apart in grace, moved us to hear and then obey the gospel by trusting Christ, and then covered us in the blood of the cross, his covenant. That's the one triune God. You hear Father, Son, and Spirit there. The one triune God saving us all by grace. And then every line after that is declaring God's grace. Chapter 1, verse 4, there's an inheritance kept in heaven for you, Christian. That's grace. Undeserved gift. In chapter 5, it's God's gracious power that guards you and keeps you for that unfading, imperishable inheritance. In, chapter, in verse 6, it's God's grace to you that declares that God's up to something good in the middle of your suffering. And every verse on and on and on after that, the whole thing is just grace. The whole letter is a declaration of God's grace. I think that much probably makes sense to us. We kind of see all of those statements, those declarations, propositions about what God has graciously done for us. Okay. Then comes the command at the end of verse 12. Stand firm in it. The it is the grace. Stand firm in the grace of God. What does that mean? Stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in it. What does that mean? Well, if I were to say, stand firm in your mother's love for you. Stand firm in your mother's love for you. I would not mean, follow this, do something or another, stand firm, so that she will love you. Or so she will keep loving you. Or so that she will love you again or more. That's actually the exact opposite of what I mean. When I say stand firm in your mother's love for you, 
What I mean is her love for you is a settled fact. Unchanging. See it, understand it, believe it, and park yourself in it. Anchor your feet right there in that ground, the ground of her love for you. And do not doubt it. Do not turn away from it. Something's going to come along and it's going to make you wonder. She, that was kind of mean from her. I don't know if does she really love me. Stand firm in the ground. It, yes, don't be, don't be swayed away. Don't be pulled away. Don't be turned, tempted to turn on her or away from her or, or to doubt that. Don't be swayed. Park yourself in her love for you. Don't try to earn it. Believe it. Don't try to, to wonder about it or enhance it. Trust it. She loves you wide and long and high and deep. That's the solid ground on which you stand firm. You know that and you stand in it. So, stand firm in the grace of God, Christian, means his grace for you is a settled fact, unchanging. See it, understand it, believe it, and park yourself in it. Anchor your feet right there in the ground of God's amazing grace. Something is going to come along. Something will for certain come along every minute of every day that we are exiles here in this world. Something's going to come at you from the enemy of your soul, the devil. Something's going to come up from your flesh, which is still fallen in sin, and from the world of people all around you. Things are going to come along that say, you should turn away to go this path. You should come and follow your former passions. You should live the way everybody else lives. And there's going to be invitation and pull, temptation and doubt. Stand firm. Plant yourself. Anchor your feet in what? Not... And this is the point. Not in the exhortations. In the declaration of God's grace. This is a tragedy that many people, including many Christians, actually think the Christian life. I don't mean theologically. I mean actually in the lived out path, the, the way that you walk this Christian life out and explain to other people, maybe even hear it and, and understand it yourself. Many Christians actually think that the Christian life is hear the exhortations, hear the commands, hear the law. Look at the world and notice what's wrong and don't do that, do this. Stand firm against the world's temptations by doing what God says. Stand firm in the exhortations is another way of saying stand firm in the law. And that never works. That does not work. The law is good and right, and holy and pure. There's a ton of it in this letter, as we already said. It shows you what faithfulness looks like. It shows you what God requires and what is actually blessing to us. It, it is itself grace to us. But t 
too often, tragically, we pursue the walk. We, we march through this world in the face of all kinds of temptations and doubt and opposition with a gigantic no, 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 no. Don't do, don't, don't, don't do this. That does not work. And it is not the message from God. The true message from God is the declaration of his grace, and in that grace we are to stand. The world, threats, temptations, and sorrows come at us. Stand firm against them. Stand firm how? In grace. See it, understand it, believe it. Park yourself in it. How do you see it and understand and believe it? Well, Again, in another great move of grace, God wrote it down for us and gave it to us through faithful servants. He gave us Peter writing it, and he gave us the written word and then the spirit in us to, to make it clear to us. Because if you think about this, verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and so on, those things are true of you whether you knew them or not, Christian. But God knows that we need to hear them and, and to see them and to kind of soak in them so that it, it grabs us. So he expresses it to us and, and sends it over our way in, in our own language so that we can read it and understand it and hear it and be wooed by it and invited and won over and excited and calmed and soothed and strengthened and, and encouraged. God calls us to faithfulness by saying, here's what faithfulness looks like, exhorts us. And then, here's, and then says, and here's why you can be and should be and promises us. Declares to us his grace. So behold the grace of God. You look back through this letter and what you should be looking at is the ridiculous kindness of God towards you. Whisper about it because it can't possibly can't possibly be true. The grace of God is old hat and boring until you realize it can't possibly be true. No, no way. I'm so glad we sang Amazing Grace this morning. Saved a wretch like me. That can't possibly be true. Until you realize how much of a wretch you are, the saved a wretch like me is a perhaps offensive and passe phrase, but it, when you get it, you say it can't possibly be true. And then you see and it, oh, but it is. And you behold the grace of God that he called you, that he loved you and then called you and sent Christ to chase you down and die for you and sent the Spirit to open your eyes to it and grabbed you and made you his, his past grace. And then because of that, right at this very moment, he's, he sits right beside you, he puts his hand on your shoulder and says, I'm with you right now to love you and protect you and guide you, empower you with my present grace. And tomorrow, next year, 
a thousand years from now, and when Christ returns, there is future grace coming, I swear it. The tomb is empty and Christ is risen. My future grace for you is vast and wide and sufficient. We don't read the Bible looking for info. We don't read the Bible looking for to-do. The Christian life is not a life of trying to figure out what we're supposed to do and then doing it. It's a life of figuring out what is true and believing it, of figuring out who is true and trusting him. What follows then from that is a new, is a supernaturally new you who then walks in a different way because you're different. If I can put that in a phrase, maybe you jot this down and think about this. I'm going to put this in a very carefully worded phrase. We hear and heed the exhortations by hearing and standing firm in the declarations. We don't ignore the exhortations, the commands. No, 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 we get it. We, we have to. That's what faithfulness looks like. But we hear them and we, and we heed them by hearing and standing firm in the declarations. God's grace drives obedience. God's grace seen and believed and stood firm in. That's the life of faith. It's a faith that's driven by grace that leads us then into walking in obedience. And conversely, sin comes about when you walk away from God's grace. How good is that? How gracious is that? That, that God works that way, that whole system, that God works that way. How gracious is that? To create a way in which we grow, we change, we mature, we behave differently, more righteously. We grow. From a heart that's cared for and loved and blessed not threatened and coerced and manipulated. There's, there's two ways. There's two ways to drive change in the world, isn't there? With a gun or with a hug. How sweet that God drives change through a hug. This is a good God. This is the God of all grace. It's how love works, and it's how God works, because God is love, infinitely glorious in his grace. It's the thing that he wants most seen and most praised about him. He is holy unlike us. He is different and unique. And he says, I'm going to hang my hat on the fact that I'm the God of grace. And that resonates with you because I made you. And you can't find that anywhere because that's me only. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you this kind of rest. I'll give you my grace. It's the offer and the call of God, and that is an amazing God and a sweet way to grow people.
to change us by working love and promise and goodness into us and that draws us then after him. That's the story of God's grace. It's the story of Peter. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of the gospel. Stand firm in it, Christian. It's good. As you stand firm in it then, you enjoy the peace that such grace brings. That leads to the second point. Here's the second observation as well as our final point from this book. Even in this world, peace is our settled privilege in Christ. Even in this world, and you could kind of say that with emphasis on a couple different words, even in this world, Peace is our settled privilege in Christ. Verse 13, Peter begins to wrap up by sending greetings to the various recipients of the letter first from she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. It's a reference to the church there in Rome that he, Peter's a part of. And in two ways, that phrase kind of works as a bookend with the very beginning of the book around this whole letter. Both in the very beginning and here at the end, he talks about the elect people who are receiving this letter, and then here at the end he uses that same word, the Roman Christians are elect along with them, chosen with them, same word. In the beginning we saw they were, they were exiles of the dispersion. You may recall we talked about how that's language alluding to the ancient Israelites who were exiled out of Israel and scattered to the different nations away from home, many to Babylon. Well, here he says, you're scattered exiles of the dispersion, and we here in Rome are also in Babylon. None of us are home. In a sense, he's saying, we've never met each other, but we're all in this together just the same. We're all elect and all exiles. None of us are home. Greetings, brothers and sisters. And greetings from Mark, my spiritual son. That's probably Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, who was a protege of Peter and with him there in Rome. In verse 14, not only the folks from here greet you, but you all there be sure to greet one another. Probably not meaning the Christians within each congregation, but as they pass the letter around to all those, those areas, the churches are going to meet each other. And he's saying, greet one another in, in this way with a kiss of love, the traditional kiss of greeting. In our culture today, total strangers commonly meet and shake hands. Back then, often they would kiss on the cheek. A lot of cultures even today still do this. So he's talking about greeting, but he wants to make sure that it's not just a kiss of formality. It should communicate love in some way. In our culture, probably something more like a hug would fit. Guy comes into the office here at church to fix the copier, and we say hello and shake hands. But if a friend stops by, you give him a hug. That's what he means, something more like that. Greet one another, church to church, with something that communicates connection and love. He's trying to help them and us feel the familial nature of the church. This is what we are, a group, a family, a body. 
We're, we're different than any other human institution. We are a people. And then finally, Peter's own personal greeting, which gives shape to all the other greetings. Peace to all of you. You're in Christ, and so I can say this over all of you. Peace. That's what the greetings and the hugs communicate. Shalom. A solidarity of purpose, a unity, a concord. We are a people who are at rest personally and with each other, characterized by love and joy and hope. That's the Christian's personal and corporate reality, our settled privilege in Christ. Peace with God first, of course. Because of the grace of God, as so well explained in this letter, God has saved us, covered our sin in Christ's blood, and there is no longer any animosity or alienation between you and the God of the universe. That is amazing. You were at peace with him, and that's where you stand. And because of that, we, the people of God, are at peace with each other. From time to time, we may quarrel. We may disagree about something. We are still sinners. We still sin. We are sinned against. But we are one family. We are all alike chosen by God the Father to be included in Christ the Son and filled with the one God the Spirit. It's good to express that and to remember it. We are in this together, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, peace with God and peace within the family of God. But I think, especially in this context, at this point in the letter, I think we should be thinking about another aspect of this peace. We all experience it together, but there's something about a peace within our own hearts as we who are exiles look out at a hostile world. We are not home. We're still on the journey, aliens and strangers in the world, and that can be unsettling. Unsettling as we experience opposition, unsettling as we experience a change, and in this particular context, a decline in our status here in this place we live. We are aliens and strangers, many of us in the place of our birth. That's changing, and that's different. We live in Babylon. And perhaps we can increasingly see that this place is broken and imperiled and in decline. When we're in Babylon, the scriptures tell us we should seek the good of the city in which we live. So in the United States, it means seek the good of America. Seek the good of this country and of this state and of this town, of your neighborhood. Seek it. And if you're like me, you probably look around and you've got some ideas about what's broken and what's wrong and what good would look like and maybe how to get there. Pursue it. Seek the good of this place, always through proper channels, through proper recourse. We talked about that. 
God would have us, though, to seek the good of this place, so, so pursue it, do so. But our peace, here's the point, our peace is not dependent on any particular outcome or situation here in this land of our sojourn. If our country becomes like Saudi Arabia or the Roman Empire of Peter's day or like the Babylon of the book of Revelation, that would be disappointing and that would not be pleasant, though it should not be a surprise. We have read the book, right? This, in my opinion, this has been the greatest country on earth. But it is still nothing more than a country on earth. And here we have no lasting home. Brothers and sisters, come what may, we stand firm in God's true grace and we experience peace to all of you who are in Christ while you are still here anywhere in this world. Whatever happens. That is our privilege. Peace with God and peace with God's people and the family of love and peace in our own hearts as we journey through a world that is troubled and in trouble. But we journey through it in the hand of the one who has overcome the world. For that, Christ came and himself was rejected cast out and crucified, but he has risen and is ascended and reigning at the right hand and us with him. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And so, peace to all you who are in him. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.